We came through chapter 23 last week, and now we're coming to the longest chapter in Genesis, chapter 24. It's 67 verses. So we've got a lot to get through, and then I'm planning on getting through the first little bit of 25 as well. And, you know, in some ways, we would expect chapter 22 to be the longest, when Abraham went up to the mountain with Isaac with intent to obey God. You know, it detailed the crucifixion from the Father's point of view, and that's really what we honed in on in chapter 22. We may expect that to be the longest chapter in Genesis, detailing the foreshadowing of the crucifixion, but it's not. And that chapter actually seems to move along fairly rapidly. As we read through it, there's not a whole lot of detail given there. But chapter 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis. And it's really quite fitting. Don't lose sight of the fact, and this is obvious, but... (laughs) Chapter 24 is happening after the events of 22. There's sequential. After a son is given to Abraham miraculously, Isaac is born. After he willingly offers himself on Moriah, that is Isaac, the son. He experiences a miraculous resurrection of sorts in his father's mind. And then he leaves the narrative. With no further explanation, the sun drops out of the narrative. Now, in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant, probably Eliezer, whose name means God is help or comforter, is sent out into a far land to gather to, his, to Abraham's son a Gentile bride. He travels to Abraham's homeland and finds a bride for Isaac there. And this unnamed servant, who we believe to be Eliezer, is certainly analogous to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's called the Comforter in the New Testament. He comes into the world to gather a bride, the church, to Christ the Son. So I would ask, why does the narrative in Genesis seem to move rather quickly through chapter 22, the crucifixion, but slow down and give every detail in chapter 24? Why is that? By a pretty good margin, the broadest subject, the most talked about subject in the New Testament is the second coming of Christ. And it works out to about one in every ten verses speak of Christ's second coming. There's a reason for that. If you were leaving your bride and she didn't know when you were coming back, what's the one thing you would want to leave her with? I love you and I'm coming back. I will return. I won't be gone long. I'm coming back. Hold fast what you have till I come. Behold, I am coming quickly. 
Those are the words of Jesus. If I was leaving my bride, I'd want to be sure she knew that I was returning for her. And that would be the only thing on my mind as soon as I left, just getting back. No wonder the Holy Spirit slowed down the pace of chapter 24. He brings out more details in this description of the story than the Abraham and Isaac chapter. As for us, Christ wants us to know that he's coming back. And we get this detailed, hopeful picture of his return and his unification with us, his bride. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. We're opening this chapter a handful of years after the events that wrapped up in chapter 23. And here it says that Abraham was old, well advanced in age. And at this point, he was likely into his 130s, maybe even slightly older. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And that's something we can take note of. Abraham was blessed in all things. He wasn't a perfect man, and he didn't have perfect faith. Yet, God blessed him. He was born to an idolatrous family in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's going to die as one of God's chosen men to facilitate the bloodline of the Messiah. What a transformation. You know, when we're looking at stories, narratives, we love a good transformation story. You know, the character starts one way. He's unsure of himself. He doesn't have what it takes to complete the mission. And somewhere along the way, he meets a guide. That guide gives him the tools that he needs to complete the mission. And God guides Abraham through this journey of his life. Over a hundred years, God has been with Abraham. And Abraham is transformed from that experience. He dies as one of God's chosen men to facilitate the bloodline of the Messiah. And he dies full of faith. What a wonderful transformation and what a wonderful testimony. And all of that is because of his obedience. No doubt an overflow of his faith. What would have happened to Abraham if he had denied God's command to get up out of his homeland, to leave his father's house and travel to an unknown land? He would have died in obscurity. No one would have known his name. The reason he has what he has is because of his obedience. 
So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh. Now, the name of his servant is not explicitly mentioned here. It's the unnamed servant. But in Genesis 15, verse 2, the eldest servant of Abraham's house was a man named Eliezer of Damascus. And this man is very likely still his oldest servant. And very likely the man that Abraham is speaking to here. He's not named directly here because he is a type of the Holy Spirit, the unnamed servant. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak of himself, but he points to Jesus, to the Son. The name Eliezer strictly means God is help. And in the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit called the one who comes alongside. The Greek word used there is parakletos. We tend to sum up the meaning of parakletos with our English word comforter. He is our advocate. He's our comforter. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, 16, and into verse 17, Jesus speaks to his disciples. He says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's parakletos, speaking of the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. Then he names him the Spirit of Truth. Abraham says, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. Now, this practice was very cultural, right? This was a practice of making an oath. You would place your hand under the other man's thigh as you swore this oath. And the oath Abraham asked his servant to make is this. And pay attention to the emphasis here. That you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. That is a big ask. Abraham's asking him to go back to Ur of the Chaldeans, hundreds of miles away, and it would have been a multiple-week journey. It would have likely been just over a month journey. Quite a big ask. But even before he gives his servant the main ask of going to get a bride, he says, do not take for my wife a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites were an immoral people. They were wicked in God's eyes. And Abraham didn't want his son to be bound to them and to have their idolatrous practices leak into his family. He sought to stay separate from the people around him. And that is good for us to take note of. You know, there should be a separation. You know, even into the New Testament, this principle is carried over. This piece of wisdom from Abraham is established 
in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's plenty hard enough for a Christian guy and a Christian girl to make it in their marriage without all of the extraneous influence of the world in that relationship. But when you throw into the mix one of them being a Canaanite, it's so much more complicated. And of course, there are situations where this is going to happen. Like if they marry as two unbelievers, one is converted, then you have a situation that you're, in effect, unequally yoked. Now, what do you do then? Well, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. I would point you there, but we're not going to venture there this morning. But in his wisdom, Abraham is just trying to set his son up for a successful marriage. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Lacking the influence of the world and the evil cultures around him. Now, Eliezer asks a perfectly fair question here in verse 5. He says, it says, And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? In other words, I'm traveling a long way to get back to Ur. How do I know that whoever I find will be willing to come back here with me? Should I come back and grab Isaac and run him back up there? That's his question. But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. Isaac stays here. Isaac's not going anywhere. This is the land that we're supposed to dwell in. And I've been here, you know, a long, long time. You're not taking my family back to where we started. Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Listen to that confidence. I love it. Abraham was so sure that Isaac was supposed to stay in Canaan that he knew God would provide a way for him to do so. There was confidence there. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And this confidence is rooted in the promise God made to him. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time the time when women go out to draw water. It says that Eliezer took 10 of Abraham's camels and left. And in that day and age, camels were really more of a luxury item. 
They're like the Rolls Royce of the desert, right? You have the donkeys, other types of load-bearing animals, oxen, uh, but the camels were really, really the bee's knees there. And, you know, it makes sense if you're traveling across a dry place, you want a camel because they don't have to drink as often. But when they do drink, they can drink a lot. And we'll see that when Rebecca comes into the picture. The time when women go out to draw water. Now, the, the women had this responsibility. While the men were out working and as they were coming home, the women would actually go to the wells to draw water for their families. They'd bring it back to their homes. <clears throat> and, you know, as we see this, Eliezer sets up camp at the well looking for a lady. He's not dumb. He knows that that's where they're going to be. You know, if we're hunting, a lot of times we'll set up by a watering hole because you know that's where the animals are going to stop. You know, Eliezer is a pretty, pretty sharp guy here. Now, he travels to Abraham's hometown, Ur of the Chaldeans, which we talked about the location of it a long time ago, but I believe it was up north, a little bit northeast of where Canaan is, Israel, today. Uh, some people think that it was almost directly east of Israel, over on the Euphrates. I don't believe that that was the Ur of Chaldeans. The eastern Ur was a Mesopotamian culture. The city was named Ur, but it was a huge city, and it was very well known. The other Ur, the northern location of Ur, was much lesser known. It was a much smaller city, and thus it was denoted by being called Ur of the Chaldeans, not Ur, the big Ur. You know, if I say Paris, you think of Paris, France. But what if I'm talking about Paris, Texas? Well, I have to add Texas, Paris, Texas, right? So I believe that it was not as long of a journey as it could have been. It would have formed like a triangle. So like the eastern Ur is right here, Northern Ur is right here, up the Euphrates quite a ways, and then Canaan would have been down here on the coast in Israel. So he just had to go up north. Uh, that city, Ur of the Chaldeans, was apparently also known as the city of Nahor. And Nahor was the name of two people, so let's not get confused. Nahor was Abraham's grandfather, Terah's father, but it was also the name of one of Abraham's brothers, okay? And it doesn't really matter to us who it's referring to because they were both from the same family, from the same place. I do believe it probably refers to his brother because his brother comes into the narrative in just a second. He's mentioned. So the point remains that this is where Abraham's family is from. Verse 12. So he... Goes in the evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day 
and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. This is the sign that Eliezer is asking God for. He's praying here. Now, let it be to the woman whom I say, please let your pitcher down to drink, and she offers to water my camels. That's the sign that he's looking for. And, you know, sometimes our prayers aren't answered for years. We pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we do not see a solid answer for years. That's sometimes how it goes. But sometimes, less often, I think, they're answered immediately. Even before we're finished praying, God answers our prayers. You know, often, more often than not, probably, if I'm praying that God would help me be more grateful for the blessings that I I have in my life and help me be content with what I have, if that's my prayer, so many times, I will, before I even finish the prayer, I will start feeling more grateful. Because he's calling to my mind all the blessings that he's already provided me with. He answers that prayer immediately. And even before I'm finished praying, tears are running down my face because I can't handle all of the blessings. That's kind of what's happening to Eliezer here. Verse 15 says, And it happened before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Rebekah walks out to the well, pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. There was a lot of names being thrown around there. So let's take just a second to sort them out. Back in Genesis 22, verses 20 through 24, we're given a brief record of the family of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Terah was the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. So Abraham, Nahor, and Haran were the three brothers, sons of Terah. Nahor, Abraham's brother, married Milcah. What a name. They had Bethuel, who is Rebekah's father. You see how this kind of flows down? So Rebekah is loosely related to Abraham, and by extension, Isaac. It says Rebekah was very beautiful to behold. Her name actually means ensnarer or fettering. And the idea was that she was so beautiful, you would become entrapped by her beauty. It would ensnare you. Her beauty was ensnaring. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. Now, Eliezer didn't know who this was. 
He didn't know that this was Rebecca, the distant relative of his master Abraham. It's not like Abraham showed him a photo of her saying, hey, look for this one when you get there. It just kind of happens this way. And obviously it's no coincidence. But he runs up to her, wastes no time. It seems she's the first one that comes. We don't know for sure. But he runs up to her and he makes this request. Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand, off her shoulder, and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Maybe a long time. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all of his camels. Just as he was hoping. Just as he had asked God for, she offered him and his camels some water. And this certainly would not have been an easy task to water 10 camels. So did a little bit of Googling here. <laughs> Obviously, camels are well-suited for desert travel. They can go a long time without drinking, but when they do drink, I've seen figures ranging from 10 to 30 gallons of water in one sitting, and just a massive amount of water. And if it was just 10 gallons per camel, Rebecca would be drawing about 100 gallons of water out of the well. You know, I don't know how big her bucket was, maybe two, three gallons, probably max to carry on your shoulder like that. That's a lot of trips down to the well and back up, filling up these troughs for the camels. This was a display of her character. That's really what Eliezer is seeing here. Her work ethic and her willingness to give, to help. It's a wonderful display of character. And so she starts to do what she said she would. But look in verse 21. And the man, the servant Eliezer, wondering at her, he's amazed that she would do this, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Up to this point, everything has gone according to plan, but Eliezer is patient, and he waits until she completes the task to tell her anything about his errand. Right? He doesn't want her to have ulterior motives. He doesn't want to spoil anything for her. He really wants to see if what she says and what she does match up. He doesn't want to meet this girl, get so excited that she's agreed to water his camels, tell her, oh, I've come to find you a really rich husband, and then she gets all excited, never actually follows through with what she says she does, and then he ends up with a lemon, right? Don't want that for Isaac. So he's patient and silent. There's a lot to be learned there. Patience and silence. So it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? 
So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. Eliezer knew the Lord. No doubt, thanks to his master, Abraham. Abraham had a great influence on his household. He bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Notice that he still hasn't told her why he's come. He did give her bracelets, and he asked, whose daughter are you? Whose family do you belong to? And she told him. So now Eliezer realizes that this woman is actually of the family of his master, Abraham. That's good news. And Eliezer bestows upon Rebekah costly jewelry. These were very ornate, probably very expensive pieces. And he asks if there's room to lodge in her father's house. So she goes and reports to her family what has just happened. And no doubt, they see all of this decked out jewelry that she's come back with. Now, Rebecca had a brother, uh-oh, whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebecca, saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man. And there he stood by the camels at the well, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Appears to be a very nice guy, very hospitable, very accompanying. Seems to be a really nice guy we find out that he's very greedy. He actually saw the jewelry on his sister's wrists, and that's what he wanted. So he saw the jewelry, runs out to meet Abraham, says, hey man, come on in. Why are you, sitting, why are you standing outside? But he was greedy. Using a charming voice, I'm sure. Verse 33, food was set before him to eat, but he said, This is the servant. I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Laban's thinking, yes, this is the one. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore him a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now, you have to imagine they knew who Abraham was. This family, though fairly removed from Abraham himself, knew who he was. 
oh, that loony bin that left his home, went to some strange land. No, that's him. That's Abraham. But now they hear that God has blessed him. They probably just knew him as the guy that ran away from home. Go follow some God somewhere. Now they're hearing that he was blessed. Eliezer tells them how God has bestowed his blessing upon Abraham. And he has become great. He was given a son by Sarah, a miracle. And he has given everything that he has to his son. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife from my son. Now the pieces are starting to come together for this family. They're realizing what's going on here. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I walk, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife from my son, from my family, and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. I want you to try to imagine Rebecca listening to this. She's sitting there listening to Eliezer recount all of the things that he has just come through. All these events that's led him to her. 42. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, Drink and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. He was speaking in his heart during that prayer. Verse 45, but before I had finished speaking in my heart, God hears the prayers of our heart. You certainly don't have to pray out loud for God to hear you. God hears our prayers in our hearts. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she made a haste and left her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink. And I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank. And she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord, and blessed, and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. God has prospered my way. God has led me here to you and to Rebecca. Now, consider what Rebecca is thinking here. She's hearing Eliezer give this account. And I actually think I have a general understanding of what she is thinking. 
if we retain this picture of Eliezer as the Holy Spirit and us as the potential bride before we came to Christ, we can probably remember the first time that we heard and really understood what the gospel meant. Picture this. A father sent his servant into a far land to gather a bride for his son. You hear that the son's family is unimaginably wealthy. You know, he sends away 10 of his camels just for his servant and men to ride on. Gifts you with unimaginable gifts, these, these pieces of jewelry. And you've been chosen to be brought into the family. Sounds like a jackpot, doesn't it? You didn't do anything to be chosen, but it was determined before the foundation of the world. And when that son returns, you'll be joined with him for eternity and inherit all of his father's wealth, all of the blessings of the father's house. It really is the best deal going. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may return, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left, so that I may go back home, basically. And this is really crunch time for Eliezer. He's traveled a long ways for a long time, and he's finally popped the question. He's asked for Rebecca to return with him. He's about to find out if this long travel was worth it. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go. And let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Rebecca's family basically tells Eliezer, we don't want to interfere with anything that the Lord is doing. They were willing to let her go back to Isaac to be his wife. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebecca, more gifts. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Now, don't miss this picture here, right? Eliezer, a picture of the Holy Spirit. Once Rebekah has been committed to him, to the son, he bestows gifts on her. Fascinating. Much like we are given the gifts of the Spirit when we're committed to Christ. We certainly don't do anything to earn those gifts. And that's a very important point. We don't earn the gifts of the Spirit. They're gifts. But they are bestowed upon us liberally. And then it's our job to steward them well. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. And they rose in the morning and said, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us for a few days at least 10. After that, she may go. You know, she can go with you, but let her delay for a few days. Don't take her away from us just yet. 
And it's got to be tough for both Rebecca and her family because this stranger comes in, asks for her hand in marriage, and is trying to leave the next morning. You know, the day before, the afternoon before, they had her da- their daughter, and everything was going hunky-dory. And then she's going to leave the next morning? That's hard for a family. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. But Eliezer insists that she not wait to make this journey. It's verse 56. And he said to them, do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered in my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. A personal choice from Rebecca. We will ask her personally. She said, I will go. That's the big question. Will you go with this man? No one is going to force you. No one is making you go with him. But will you? That was the question for Rebecca, and it's still the same question for us today in regards to Christ. Will you go with this man? The son offered himself on Moriah, was resurrected, ascended to be with the father, and his father sent his Holy Spirit to the earth to gather you as a bride for him. And the question is the same, will you go with him? Or will you delay? Will you put it off one more day? Oh, I'll, I'll get right with God tomorrow, next week, next year. Will you respond to his calling like Rebecca did? I will go. That's the question. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebecca and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Again, think about Rebekah, what she's going through. How much did she know about this son that she was going to marry? Hardly anything at all. She'd never met the guy. She never even met his dad, just his dad's servant who had come to grab her. She only knows what the servant has revealed to her. And yet, she commits herself to the son. Faith. She has faith. She only knows what the servant has told her. But on the journey back to Canaan, how many questions did Rebecca ask Eliezer? What kind of questions were those? Trying to get to know her husband a little early here. How tall did you say he was? You said he has short, dark hair. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. 
What does he like? What makes him smile? What does he value? What does he hate? What makes him glad to see? It's on the journey that we learn who he is. It's on the journey that we learn who he is. You can't know everything there is to know about Jesus before you commit to him. You just can't. Paul says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have known the mind of Christ. And how do we know the mind of Christ before we meet him? By the Spirit. The Spirit teaches us all things. The servant, Eliezer, the comforter, I have no doubt, taught Rebecca what he knew of the son she was about to marry. What a beautiful picture of our walk with Christ on earth. There are things about him that the Spirit has, reveal, has to reveal to you on the journey. This was after Rebecca's commitment. So they make their way back to Abraham and Isaac, and the whole journey is skipped. Suddenly, we're back with Isaac, and he sees his bride riding in. What's up with that? It says, 62, Now Isaac came from the way of Be'er Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. All that time, probably more than a month of journey, is skipped. Now we can tell that Abraham has successfully passed on his love for the Lord to his son. Isaac goes out to meditate in the field. Away from everyone else, away from the distractions of the camp, just he and God. Now, this is Isaac going out to pray. Don't be confused by the word meditate. And we really don't want to confuse terms here. Even though the word meditate is used, it's not talking about the kind of meditation that we probably think of immediately. We're not talking about the Eastern kind of meditation where you're emptying your mind. That's not what this is. Meditation on the Lord is filling your mind with him, with his attributes, with his commandments, his statutes. When we as Christians meditate on the Lord, it involves filling our minds with him, not emptying them out. And that's a very important difference. Christians have no business practicing the Eastern way of meditation. But we should sit alone in a quiet place and reflect on the Lord and his statutes. And over and over in the text, the practice of meditation is connected with an active reflection on the Lord's statutes and the things he has done. A few examples. Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, 
but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Psalm 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119, 15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Last one, Psalm 145, 5. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. That's what Isaac is doing. He's meditating on the Lord. Now, I thought this was really interesting. The Old Testament has a very strong tendency to leave out certain parts of accounts just like this. The return trip to Isaac is not spoken of. If we're looking at this typologically, what happens during that interval of the journey? You know, that's our walk on earth, right? The church. That's the time when the church is gathered to Christ. The Old Testament tends to leave out, by inspiration of the Spirit, of course, this interval that we now see is the church age. It is purposefully concealed in the Old Testament. The church, the mystery of the church is concealed in the Old Testament. Paul in Ephesians 3, 3 and on says, he made known to me the mystery, mysterion, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Now this is the mystery. He's going to spell it out for us that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. I rejoice for that. That is the most wonderful news I have heard. Because no longer do the Jews share a special proximity to God. Now, to clarify, it was known to the Jews in the days of the Old Testament that the Gentiles would be blessed in some form or fashion. That's prophesied in the Old Testament. But the mystery, and some Messianic Jews still struggle with this today, the mystery is that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same promise, the same body. They would share the same privileges as the Jews as far as their closeness of relationship with him. That's what really trips them up. But Paul says that in the other ages, besides the church age, you know, before Christ died, this mystery was not made known to men. And when you're looking for it, you'll find many intervals in the Old Testament where typologically the church would fit right into. And they're skipped over entirely. This isn't the only instance of that. So when you look for it, you'll find it. So be sensitive to that as you're reading through the Old Testament. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac had dismounted from her camel, I'm sorry, and when she saw Isaac, 
she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. The New King James says dismounted. The Hebrew says she fell off her camel. That's, that's really what it says. Was she struck by his rugged handsomeness? She lost her balance on her camel and tumbled right off. Did she let go of the saddle horn trying to pull her veil on so that he wouldn't see her uncovered? Lost balance, tumbled off. Either way, she ended up on the ground and she yelled to Eliezer, Who is that? Do I need to get my veil on? He said, Yeah, put it on. That's him. That's my master. So she fumbles around, cover herself before he makes it to them. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. He was comforted after his mother's death. You know, this is pretty telling to me. It says that Isaac was comforted by Rebekah, his wife, after his mother's death. But it seems Sarah passed away around 20 years before this. That tells us that it's not a quick process to heal that wound. There's no natural response when we're confronted with death because it is actually an unnatural process. For Isaac, his wife was a great comfort to him. You know, there's no filing cabinet in our mind for death. We weren't created to have to deal with death. We were created as everlasting beings. We were created to have continual fellowship with the Father. But when sin came into the world, so did death. We were not created to deal with that. Now, fortunately for Isaac, he found some comfort. Genesis chapter 25, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. Sarah has been gone for about 20 years by the time that Abraham takes Keturah to be his wife. And if he was old before, it said he was old, well advanced in age, at the beginning of chapter 24, he's really old now. He's really getting up there, somewhere in his 140s or 150s by this point. And he lives out the last 35 or so years of his life with Keturah. This would have been someone that Abraham was already familiar with. It wasn't a new face. She wasn't a stranger. She probably lived in their camp and knew their family pretty well. And Abraham would have many sons by Keturah. You know, God did not just bless him one time with Sarah. It seems that God actually regenerated him, in a sense, physically, so that he was fertile, and he had these sons into his 140s or 150s. That's how it appears. This 
you know, I, when you get older, somebody asks you, would you want to be 20 again? What would, if you would like to be 20 again, raise your hand. You got two in the back. <laughs> so I was listening to Joe Foch, and he basically said the same thing. He said, well, if I could go back but still know what I know now, then maybe I'd do it. He said, but I, I wouldn't go back to learn everything I've already learned. That's a hard pill to swallow. It seems that Abraham and Sarah, to an extent, got that opportunity. God turned back their biological clock. They, he revitalized them, yet they still knew everything they knew. That's remarkable. Verse 2, And she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Lumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abadah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Now, the sons of Midian, one of Keturah and Abraham's sons, are also listed. Midian, the Midianites, would become perennial enemies of Israel. And that's why they're listed out right there, just to give some context to the reader. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. Isaac was the heir of all that his father had. And that point is made previously. Now it says that Abraham followed through. He actually gave to Isaac all that he had. But he also was nice to his other sons. He gave them gifts of sorts. And it says that Abraham, while he was still living, sent his other sons, besides Isaac, eastward, right, into the land of what we know as Iran and Iraq, over that way. So Abraham's other sons got petroleum reserves, and oil and natural gas, and Isaac got the dirt. But there's so much more to the land than what Isaac could imagine. So much more than dirt in Israel, isn't there? But it is kind of ironic that he sent them to the, the oil lands. Verse 7, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 175 years. What a long life. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. After 175 years, Abraham finally moved out of that tent. He finally moved out of that body that he was sojourning in. He died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years. You'll notice the phrase, of years, is italicized in your Bible. That was added for clarification. But the original text says that he was full. He was satisfied. 
Some translate it as satiated. There was a completeness to his life. What a testimony to leave behind. And that's how I want to be when it's time for me to move on. Satisfied. You know, having lived my life according to my calling and having run the race well. Full. Satisfied. There's no striving at the end. Just peace and an excitement to see my Lord face to face. And he was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Both his sons were there at his death. What a sight that must have been for him. Ishmael actually getting along with his brother. You know, we don't see that often. He and Isaac mourned together for their father, who they both loved dearly. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. That's the same cave that Abraham bought that we saw last week to bury Sarah in. They were laid one by the other. He's laid to rest beside his love, his wife, Sarah. And to this day, their bodies are still there awaiting the resurrection. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son, Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahai Roy. That's a good place for us to wrap up this morning. We'll pick up looking at Isaac's blessing and the families of Ishmael and Isaac next week and some nuggets in there for us. So we'll close right there this week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you.